0: The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to UUSF.org. Sometimes, you know, you can't say it better than a cartoon does. And if I'd been really advanced, I would have had Jonathan sort of take a scan of this, but it's Roz Chast. Do you know Roz Chast in The New Yorker? Jonathan, if I don't move, if I just hold steady, can you get that? Anyway, it's, it's four people sitting on a couch, and it says, the faith-based family. And above each of their heads is a little bubble, and over the, I'm assuming, the dad's head, it says, one day cars will run on tap water, And above the mom's head, it says, one day there will be chocolate cake that tastes great and has zero calories. (laughs) And then above, I think, the older daughter's head, it says, one day school won't exist. You'll just, what does that say? Swallow a pill and voila. And then, among the youngest, it says, one day monkeys will rule the universe. <laughs> Faith. It's this funny word that we use and lean on in lots of ways. Give you ever imagine if an alien came and tried to figure out what it means, what they would be gathering as evidence. Let's see, it describes everything from trust that the train will arrive on time, to what happens after we die, it motivates people to sacrifice their lives for someone they don't even know, and also motivates them to take lives of people they don't even know. As Paul, Tillich said in our reading this morning, the easy thing to do would just be to toss this word out, given how strange and how contaminated it is and how we use it, but that would leave us without a word for something that we need a way to point toward so we can talk about it, this significant thing it points at, so our alternative is to reinterpret it. In Tillich's attempt to do just that, he came to see and describe faith as that which pointed toward our ultimate concern, he called it. What he meant by that was that each of us had something, something that we ordered our lives around, that we aimed our actions toward and our choices and our self toward, It might be that this ultimate concern is something that we have actually never formally articulated or reflected on, but that doesn't deny, he thinks, that it's there, ordering our lives just the same. And for some of us, that ultimate concern might be something like the notion of the kingdom of God as we were taught it as a child or came to imagine it in our own religious imaginings. But it might also be as simple as the necessity to care for and protect the ones we love. And it might also be something as relatively simple and superficial as material or professional success. Whatever that thing is, that orders our choices and our personality. That, for Tillich, is our faith. That is the reality hoped for, sometimes despite the evidence that it can be achieved. So it's important that we have a word to talk about this thing, because operationally, existentially, it's important. Richard Davis Lowell offered us a great metaphor this morning for faith in his reflection, in the story of his sister and that lamp, the one she put under her uncle's pillow with the best of intents to keep his bed warm because she loved him so much, the one that started, almost started, a fire. As Richard pointed out with that metaphor, faith is this double-edged sword, is the phrase I would use, It can warm, and it can burn. It can be a light that shows us a way through the dark nights, and it can be hidden under the proverbial bush or pillow, where it cannot do what it is meant to, and used wrongly, even with the best of intents, by the wielders of it, can burn down the house. It's because of this quality of faith as double-edged that I think you and I need a couple of things to have any chance to do it in a way that ensures that we're happy with what our faith was when we come to reckon with our life at the end. First, I actually think we need community, and I'm not just doing that to try and sell people on you know, what we have here. You can find community in lots of different places, but I do actually think that religious community in particular can serve the purpose I'm gonna describe particularly well, which is why it has existed, I think, for centuries in all its forms and still does. And that's because we get a couple of things in community, particularly religious community, we get, Inherited tradition. Wisdom that is time-tested by other lives who also have lived in search of a life of meaning that we wanted and reflected on that in study groups and in their own private internal life. And so we get a little advance on the decision-making that we're gonna have to do. Some suggestions. Get us on the way. And I think we need community, particularly communities where passionate dialogue is permitted, where we are allowed to talk about matters of faith and tradition, to question and challenge them, and to revisit and change them, so that we, like unpacking the word faith, keep one another honest about what it is we're putting at the center of our lives, challenge each other, particularly in light of a world that is always offering us the sort of ongoing revelation of wisdom, right? Things that we used to think were absolutely true about humanity or the way the world should be structured, we have revisited time and time again to the merit of wisdom and compassion more often than not. So we need community with tradition and a place for passionate dialogue around these issues. And I think that liaises to me to what I think is the second thing we need in lives of faith, if we're going to get somewhere worth going with it, and that is humility. Because we can be wrong, all of us need to be ready at any point in our lives, even if we're 90 years old, and realize that we've bet on the wrong thing at the center of our lives. We have to be able to admit, as heartbreaking as it is, that it's time to course correct and steer toward another truth and order our lives by a different North Star. We have a member in the congregation who I met with for lunch recently who's incredibly smart and very rigorous and everything that he um, is involved in, exhaustively researches things, like records the city council meetings so he knows everything that's going on in the city, fast forwards through the boring parts to get to the parts that matter. And he's done that in his professional life and in his service to local urban development nonprofits and universities. And a lot of what he thinks is true has been right, which is why he was successful in very clear and verifiable ways in his life. But it surprised me, but it shouldn't have when he said in the course of this lunch that he goes into every conversation, no matter how much he has researched what is on the agenda for the day, which is up for decision, he comes in holding out the possibility that he might be wrong. I listen, he said, for how I might be wrong. If that's true in decisions about how the city council runs or your business does or what investments you might make, even more true for what we're talking about. Humility is vital to faith, to anything ultimate, because the stakes are so high if we get it wrong, when we get it wrong. Which is to say that you and I, ideally, I think, in matters of faith, I think we should be fiercely stubborn and will be incredibly courageous and sacrificial in service to whatever we decide is the ultimate concern of our life, and we can't ever, no matter how much we've thought or read or discussed, ever shut out the possibility that we might be slightly or even completely off course Because it's not faith, actually, that you and I want to throw out of our vocabulary some days. It's bad faith. It's false faith, which Tillich would say or describe as a faith that puts temporal, superficial, self-serving things at the center, things that are unworthy of the urge toward life like financial success over the health of a marriage and the nurture of relationships, or, or nationalistic pride over the easy sacrifice of your citizens, the way we see Putin doing right now in that war. We have to be careful what we put our faith in. Which brings me to the cover of our order of service this morning. This week, Jonathan offered me a few choices of images, you know, important, what image you choose. And most of them I understood right away looking at them, but this one, I was like, what's this one, Jonathan? (laughs) And he said, well, look, look, there's this store, Vanessa, and there's this bicycle that's left outside, and it's unlocked. Isn't that an act of faith? And it is, and it resonated with me more than I think he realized when he shared it. And maybe some of you are in this place that I have been in um, right now or this past week especially, it resonated because this unlocked bicycle that he put on the cover, it, it speaks to a faith in humankind, right, in their honesty and their goodness. It reminded me, of course, of all the small ways that we risk on whatever is our faith, the way we live daily with it, the mundane effects it can have, not just the big ones. And what Jonathan didn't know is that I have been stuck lately, and I, I really in a kind of despair, I would say, about the human race. Has anyone been despairing about the human race lately? You can raise your hand. I have always been, I think, a temperate optimist about humanity. I've always believed that we have this incredible power for good and for evil, but that good, this love of connection, of harmony, this love of self-transcending work in the world, that that pulls us forward and wins out more often than not. I loved the idea in philosophy that before we're born, and Plato talks about these ideals are pressed into us, then when we come into the world, when we see them, when we see truth and beauty and goodness, it resonates in us like a tuning fork on a guitar, and we know it to be infinite and powerful and important, and it pulls us into the world. And that always felt true to me in my lived experience, and I have bet on that. As Unitarian Universalists, I think many of us have bet on that. I think it's part of what draws us here together. And we can do that because we believe that there is a God in whose image we are made, and so that is true of us, or because cooperative pro-social behavior is selected over billions of years because it is the better way for all of us to survive and thrive, and evolution made us that way. We can believe that for a lot of different reasons, but I think it's one thing that unites us as Unitarian Universalists across all the differences in our belief systems that exist among us. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice, Theodore Parker said, and we repeat. And that's not something that we say and believe as we say it because we think rainbows of justice are pulled magnetically to Earth by gravity. When we say that, what we actually mean, what's behind that, the faith commitment that is behind that, is that we believe that over time, more arms will be reaching up, determined to pull justice down toward Earth than the arms that push it back toward chaos and despair and evil. We trust humanity even when there is no evidence in front of us. And that commitment, That faith has been so central to every decision I've made. It's why I became a minister. But I have been doubting it lately, and that has felt really scary. And maybe it has felt scary for those of you who have been doubting it too. So maybe I just speak to you right now because I also need to name that, and I'm gonna try not to cry and you don't have to take care of me. I am great, actually, because then this week came and so many of you were out at polling places and making phone calls and so many of you sent letters. How many letters did we send out from this congregation? Over 6,000? 6,017. And people were doing it all over, but you were doing it. And my daughter, who's a first-time voter, called to ask if I was getting texts from people who said they were neighbors asking if I had voted yet. And I said I hadn't. And she said, well, I'm getting constant texts from people. People trying to get the youth vote out and not telling her what to vote, trusting her to vote, but urging her to do so. And then Tuesday night and Wednesday, the results started to pour in and solidify, and it seems like people around the country voted against their party affiliations. If those party affiliations would have meant supporting candidates who'd been at the Capitol trying to overthrow our government by violent means, the government, Kate, that you spoke about, the America that at its best, its promises, we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for, And others voted against divisive candidates, splitting their tickets out of a desire for a better way forward than divisiveness, even with inflation, even with the fears of the world and war and gas prices through the roof and so much that could make you close in and get ugly. And that made me feel hopeful, really hopeful, And then by luck or grace or both, on Wednesday night, I went to a fundraiser for the Wikimedia Foundation in the heart of Silicon Valley. And this too is going to be a source of hope. Just wait. We went to support the wonderful social entrepreneur Mariana Iskander, an uh, Egyptian-born Coptic Christian American who's done amazing work with a South African nonprofit that worked with youth empowerment, and then she was the COO of Planned Parenthood, and then she joined Wikipedia, the nonprofit online encyclopedia, which the foundation supports because she was drawn to their work, and she's a person I've had the luck to get to know a little bit, and she's wonderful. do you know, for instance, that Wikipedia has 232 languages, knowledge and articles, and 232 languages? Do you know that right now they're working with communities who are based out of the oral tradition to try and figure out how to capture that wisdom and truth so it's preserved? It's amazing work, like this library of Alexandria online. Anyway, Jimmy Wales, one of the founders, was there, and it, one point, he talked about trust. He said, we're being taught to underestimate the ability to trust one another, but he said, you know, if you think about it, in a room of a thousand people, 990 of them are good folks. And nine of them are pains in the butt. And one of them might actually be malicious. But those are fantastic odds. And we bet our lives on that trust if we think about it. And Wikipedia bets its whole existence on people willing to get in rooms and argue about things that are incredibly important to them and find some way to present a balanced article. And they do it, many of them, most of them for no pay at all, just to share knowledge and build understanding. And the whole thing is bet on trust, on faith in humankind if you build the structures and the platforms. All this to make open dialogue and knowledge-sharing possible. It was good to be in a place of people ignited and fed and bearing lots of fruit out of that set of assumptions. And it reminded me that that was also the dream of the founder of the World Wide Web, Tim Berners-Lee, who is, by the way, a Unitarian Universalist out of the Lexington congregation in Massachusetts. We Unitarian Universalists, we have staked our lives and our work on a similar kind of commitment, a faith in humanity. And I'm sorry to say I was doubting it this fall, but this week I saw all the signs and the reminders of why we have this faith and make this bet, why we leave our bikes unlocked, proverbially or for real, and our hearts open, why we send texts encouraging our neighbors to vote, but trust them to vote in the ways their hearts called them to. I was reminded to keep this faith. and to go back to rowing hard for the shores of our hopes. So, my friends, may we keep alive the language that allows us to stay in some of the most important conversations we can have, stay humble even about what is ultimate for us, no matter how much we have researched and thought about it, just in case we're wrong, and keep the faith that keeps us reaching up to bend the moral arc of the universe toward our dreams and hopes for everything our faith has bet our lives on. So may it be. And amen.
1: I'm grabbing for memories. My first memories of faith so long ago that when I reach for them, those memories materialize like those old, slightly out of focus Polaroids with their thin white frames and a few creases. It was around 1962, a time of easy bake ovens, of Barbie dolls with legs that don't bend, of rag doll puppies that went to bed with us. Four children, under five, one set of twins, my sister, and me, the oldest. But there I am in those black and white photos, bundled up, playing outside with my brothers and sisters, thick cat on, snow piled up on the street. It was probably May. There's snow on the ground in Grand Forks, North Dakota, in May. It snows a lot there. I remember the dragonflies that Sunday, as big as robins, buzzing around my mother's hat as we returned home from church. We opened the door to our house and from somewhere inside came the faint odor of smoke, something smoldering, and the search was on. Back and forth we looked. I really didn't know what we were looking for. I just had the feeling that something wasn't quite right. There's something in the air that shouldn't be, wafting around, and then there's that urgency in my mother's voice telling me that whatever it was needed to be found and found quick. Straight to the kitchen, then down the wooden stairs to the basement, up the stairs to the back of the house to the spare bedroom being used by my uncle while he was studying with us. There he was laughing and holding a smoldering pillow, and my sister Lorraine sobbing and saying, I, I just wanted to keep Uncle warm. On the nightstand, a lamp without a shade burned brightly. So brightly, I had to look past it. And in the middle of that pillow, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. A circle, a perfect circle. And I thought, the light did that. I wanted to keep my Uncle warm, I remember her saying, as he gingerly took the pillow to the bathroom. And as I thought, rather than something that illuminates, when covered and muffled, even with the best of intentions, light can become something dangerous, something I don't think my sister wanted it to be. And I felt I learned something that day about life and warmth and truth that it just is. For my sister, that light existed It can warm, it can illuminate, but don't smother it, even if you want to keep warm. I remember how much I loved my sister. Today, I remember how innocent her reason, how pure the light, and how I learned it could do something I never imagined it could do. Over the years, I began to hear the words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, but what I heard instead was I am the light and I truly came to believe that light meant life and that life lives inside of me and everyone else. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light I would hear over and over again. I would imagine that light inside of me never off, my body acting as its shade, and wondered where it would take me. I've held on to that light and remembered that lamp through storms and gales and winds that have blown mightily. Sometimes I've tried to put a pillow over that, but eventually I, I begin to smell smoke and and it says to me I'm here. I must do what I'm here to do to illuminate. Know that I will smolder, but never die out. And know that to deny my presence and your own essence is to invite consequences. You are free to explore. Still, the I am the light of truth, it tells me, and I will be there. Here it is, the cry went out, and there it was. In my eyes, something full of power and peril of illumination that cannot be contained, that can be covered, but will smolder gently, yet firmly, becoming something other than what my dear sister wanted it to be. Over the years and in many ways, that light burns within me, maybe not brighter, but no dimmer than when I first noticed it.